Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Bob Glauber, uh, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to the annual lecture on regulatory and government policy, which was funded eight years ago uh, by the National Association of Securities Dealers, which is, of course, now FINRA, which is the private sector regulator uh, of the securities industry. Uh, it was funded at the time I retired as chairman and CEO, and I, of course, want to again express my appreciation, the appreciation of the Kennedy School for this generosity. Our speaker this evening uh, is Barney Frank, uh, who I'm sure most all of you know, uh, former congressman, uh, chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, and incidentally, and of much lesser importance, uh, my congressman for most of the 30 years I've lived in Brookline. Uh, Barney's life traces an arc from growing up in Bayonne, New Jersey, which of course is a place most people accelerate through on the Jersey Turnpike, uh, to Harvard College, Harvard Law School, a staffer to Boston Mayor Kevin White, Congressman Michael Harrington, eight years in the Massachusetts House, uh, and then 32 years of service in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, in the last years of that service, and most importantly, he chaired the House Financial Services Committee uh, during and after the financial crisis and, of course, the monumental legislation that was spawned by that crisis, the Dodd-Frank bill, uh, carries his name. Most of his career is associated with financial legislation, uh, but in part by the good graces of the Republicans who took control of the House in 2010, uh, Barney has returned to Boston uh, and focused his policy analysis and interest on other issues, uh, including foreign policy, uh, and that indeed will be the subject of his talk tonight. Uh, we all have a full and fascinating evening in store for us with Barney tonight, but for those of you who need a further Barney fix, uh, tomorrow evening on the cable network Showtime uh, is the biography compared to what? Uh, the improbable journey of Barney Frank. Uh, Barney Frank, over his years in Congress, accumulated a reputation as an immensely knowledgeable policy analyst and advocate, a most effective legislator, and a person who conducted his business with respect for those who disagreed with him, and an extraordinary sense of humor. He was, in fact, in most cases, the smartest guy in the room, but he never promoted himself as that. I had the good fortune to know Barney and deal with him at various times during uh, his career and my career. Uh, we were both members of the class of 61 at Harvard. Uh, he was legendary even then. Uh, I renewed my acquaintance with Barney when I became Undersecretary of the Treasury in the George H.W. Bush administration in 1989. Most of the legislation for which I was responsible went through the House Banking Committee, which was the predecessor of the Financial Services Committee. At that time, Barney was a mid-level Democratic congressman but among his colleagues, really respected far beyond his seniority. Uh, in those days, of course, if you wanted to move legislation, uh, you dealt with Democrats. Uh, Republicans were virtually an invisible minority. Uh, and in honesty, we wouldn't have passed the savings and loan cleanup bill as quickly as we did, or the banking and GSE legislation uh, several years later in as good form as we did without his advice and support. Uh, Barney is bright, knowledgeable, and wise. Uh, that made him great fun to testify before, uh, in contrast to many of his colleagues. Uh, 
Uh, he actually wrote his own questions, understood the answers he got, and followed up most often incisively and wittily. Uh, it was great fun to be challenged by him, and most often I lost the contest, not simply because he sat several feet above me when he questioned me, but because he, was, he thought faster and he knew the issues better. I did, however, win one such confrontation, uh, which has left me proud enough to tell it again tonight, 25 years later. To pay for the SNL bailout cost, the administration contrived an off-budget funding mechanism, which left the Democrats furious because we avoided eviscerating the Graham-Rudman Budget Control Act. When I testified on the SNL bill, Barney challenged me, saying that our financing structure would cost the taxpayers billions more. I told him I believed any additional cost would be modest, no more than a quarter of 1%, that is 25 basis points. Barney said it would be many multiples of that, challenged me to come back when I knew the financing cost and when it was completed. That I did, of course, about a year later. When the questioning got to Barney that time, uh, he said with great glee, okay, come clean on the funding costs. Uh, you promised no more than 25 basis points. You certainly didn't stay within that number. Uh, was it double, triple? In the spirit of his question, I replied, you have us, I have to admit it. We did indeed overrun our 25 basis point estimate. He, he interrupted, was it 50 basis points, 75? And I got the glorious satisfaction of replying, it was 26 basis points. One basis point, one one hundredth of one percent greater uh, than we had estimated. Uh, for once, Barney was without words. Ten years later, in the mid-2000s, I had the chance to meet reasonably regularly with Barney when I was head of NASD. We talked about numerous financial policy issues, but most often about housing and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the housing GSEs. Barney was a passionate supporter of affordable housing, but sought never to do so at the risk of the financial safety of the GSEs. This is a very complex issue. But throughout our discussion of housing policy, Barney sought intensely to keep focus on the financial safety and soundness of these institutions, as well as housing availability for those of limited financial resources. Uh, shortly before Barney retired, the Washington Post published an article evaluating Barney's contribution to the housing crisis. The headline really stated the conclusion. Barney Frank did not cause the housing crisis. During his years in Congress, Barney also had a profound effect on a most important social issue. Uh, from his very high profile position, Barney led the movement in Congress to speak forthrightly about sexual preference. He was the first member of Congress to state openly and clearly his homosexuality. What is now open and easy and sanctioned by the courts was then closed and difficult. Barney was once again a great leader. Although Barney is most associated with financial policy and legislation, his retirement, as I said earlier, has allowed him to pursue broader public policy issues. Tonight, he will discuss foreign policy under the title, The Importance of Being Dispensable, Downsizing Our Global Ambitions. That said, I hope when we get to Q&A, Barney, that you'll let us talk and question you more broadly, including financial issues. So it's my great pleasure to introduce my classmate, my congressman, uh, my wise counsel at important times in my career, 
and my friend, Barney Frank. Thank you, Bob. <clears throat> I appreciate the generosity introduction, a couple of clarifications. My problem, by the way, over the SNL bailout uh, wasn't such a bad word back then, that's what it was. Uh, I was not so worried about the cost. Um, I was unhappy that uh, those who supported a uh, conservative fiscal device called the Graham-Rudman Act, that was the effort to legislate controls on, uh, on government spending. Um, and uh, I thought it was unworkable. And I particularly objected to its impact on programs that were gonna help people who I felt were most vulnerable. So when the administration decided that they would go ahead with something that was very important to them by exempting it from this bill, uh, I was unhappy. I was perfectly prepared to make the money, but I wanted to discredit the bill, uh, not simply uh, pretend that it didn't exist. The only other correction I would make, and I understand it, it's a, it, 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 it's a common one, and Bob generously said I was the first member of Congress, actually the, the first to volunteer my sexual orientation. Actually, that was not true. Uh, thousands of members of Congress before me had in fact volunteered that they were straight. Um, I was the, uh, I was the first, um, I, I, I was the first uh, on, on the other side. And I would add, in fact, that uh, among the thousands who volunteered they were straight, in this case, probably more than one quarter of 1% who were volunteering that they were straight were not. <laughs> I understand the importance of the focus on regulatory affairs, and Bob's had a very distinguished career in, 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 in sensible regulation. Uh, and I do wanna affirm the topic I've chosen, the importance of downsizing America's global ambition, in my judgment, is directly linked to regulation. It is linked to everything the government does. Uh, I worry that we will see going forward a reversion to a period when there was insufficient regulation. Um, and that's, I will, I will fit this into the topic with, with no strain. If the subject is whether or not we should re-deregulate derivatives and allow people to borrow money for their houses who have no remote chance of paying it back, the public will be on the side of those of us who want regulation. But that's not the threat to regulation. The threat to regulation comes because it's part of government. And the threat is that the current disrespect, dislike, contempt for government will continue to the point where regulation will no longer be possible, not on its own merits, but the whole ship will sink. Uh, just, by the way, one example of how these things happen. If you ask the public if we should regulate derivatives, financial derivatives, uh, the general answer is yes. Uh, even people who don't fully understand them, who include many of those who sold them, and even more, those who bought them. Um, but um, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission was the entity that was given a significant amount of power over financial derivatives. This was a fairly small agency. 
that used to be in charge of uh, pork bellies. Um, uh, if you saw that movie Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd and was it uh, uh, French O'Tone, et cetera, Ralph Bellamy, that was the CFTC's jurisdiction. All of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but, but fairly quickly, the financial industry invented derivatives and uh, a lot more is at stake. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission has jurisdiction over nominally, as we say, what, hundreds of trillions of dollars. Its budget is $250 million. Um, that is, we are inadequately regulating the financial services industry to some extent, it's a lot better than it was, not because there was a general distaste for regulating it, but because uh, this, this view that government does everything badly keeps you from getting the money. And so that's what I want to talk about. I, let me state the thesis. At the current level of spending on national security that we are engaged in, it is impossible, I believe, to sustain the consensus we need to govern ourselves effectively and deal with the quality of life at home. Look at where we are today. The Republican Party, and let me say, this is going to be partisan, but I know you should not be partisan for the sake of partisanship. Neither should you avoid partisanship where it's accurate, just to be respectable. I've said to people now, and there's been a lot of progress in the LGBT area, uh, but, I, but I am still a member of a minority that, that receives very little respect from public opinion, that is ridiculed and considered to be uh, socially undesirable. I'm a partisan Democrat. Uh, I didn't used to be such a partisan Democrat. I used to be uh, more bipartisan. I supported former Senator Ed Brooke, for example, here in Massachusetts, and other Republicans. But I've seen this movement of the Republican Party to the right, and it has two factors. A movement to the right based on substantive policy positions is fine. You have those debates. There's a qualitative difference recently, and it is that you have a significant portion of the party that does not simply hold very substantive conservative views, but is prepared to shut everything down if they don't win. It is the uh, rule or rune. An aside, by the way, many of my most conservative colleagues, some friends, who proclaim their constitutionalism, remember they are the Tea Party patriots, the people, after all, the Tea Party who brought us ultimately the Constitution. People who say we will shut the government down if we are not able to undo policies we dislike fundamentally misunderstand the American Constitution. In fact, they have us confused with England to get to the pre-revolutionary stage. In the House of Commons, in England, as people know, if you win a majority in the House of Commons on election day, a couple of days later, you're running the government. Same in Canada, Justin Trudeau will be running the government very soon. Our Constitution is very different. We have the situation, not just of the separation of powers, but of the separation of the years in which they are elected. America is today, in, in England, Canada, they are governed by the people who were elected to Parliament, the House of Commons in particular, in the last election. That's who runs the show. America today is governed by senators elected in 2010, whose mandate is still valid, a president elected in 2012, 
and representatives and some senators elected in 2014. The fact is, given that very deliberate effort to restrain majoritarian impulses, it takes at least two consecutive electoral victories to make fundamental policy change in America. It took Roosevelt 32 and 34 and into 36. Uh, we were able to make some big changes, we Democrats, because we won in 2006 and 2008. George W. Bush won in 2002 and four. Here's the problem, and you wanna know why we have gridlock in America today? First of all, there are two groups of people who are escaping some of the blame for this, if you wanna blame people. The founding fathers and the American electorate. The founding fathers were the ones who staggered elections. The American voters are the ones who in 2008 elected Obama, and then in 2010 empowered people who hate him, and then in 2012 went back to him, and then in 2014 went back to hating him. It's not my fault that they can't make up their mind. And it is the interaction of that variation and our constitution that frustrates people. Now, that would be okay in prior years, we're used to that. The difference is that you have a group today that says, oh, if we don't get our way, we, 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 we stop things. By the way, under our rules, if you win the last election, you certainly have a veto power over anything going forward. And you can probably make some changes, but you don't have the ability constitutionally to uproot things that were made years ago. Healthcare, uh, other things that these people dislike. So here's the difference, and this, this all does tie in, trust me. I got nothing to do but think these days, so it, I, 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 this is how it's occurred to me. In the past, people who won one election but didn't have total control would fight hard for what they wanted, but in the end would say, okay, yeah, but we gotta keep the ship afloat, so let's work this out. What's happened today is that a significant percentage of the Republican Party believes not simply that previous public policies are incorrect, but that the whole enterprise of government is badly flawed, and that if you shut it down, very little harm will happen in the interim, and in fact, you need to give it a shock because it's an inherently corrupt system. And here's the other point that I think is left out. This cannot be resolved by people in Washington. Uh, in particular, the notion that if we were nicer to each other, this would change. In the first place, uh, there's not much snarling going on. Um, in fact, people are still civil to each other. It is just that the differences have gotten so deep that they cannot be uh, overcome. I mean, I was asked if I left Congress because of the rancor. In fact, it would be easier to be a member of Congress today in which you simply try to score debating points off the other side than to sit down and try and work something out. That's much more stressful. I mean, I, I wasn't driven up by rancor. Rancor is, I'm very good at rancor. Rancor is one of my best, best things. Um, but this is the problem, and, and the problem is not within Washington. It is within the electorate, specifically, not entirely, but, but largely, the Republican electorate. What has happened is that the Republican Party leadership has done such a good job of attacking not just President Obama and the Democrats, but that whole set of public policies, that they have persuaded a, an operational majority of their party, at least a plurality that can veto things, that government's no good. 
and they have made it very hard for Republicans to assemble a governing coalition. So you have two of the most implausible candidates to be in the lead this late in the presidential nominating process in American history, Donald Trump and Ben Carson. And I have to say, I think as you look at it, Carson is even loopier in his public policy uh, than Trump. I must say, I am struck by Carson's argument that if Hitler had not uh, prohibited Jews from owning pistols, that they could have stopped uh, the, the, the Nazis. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's nice, I'm Jewish, it's nice when people praise the Jews so much, but the notion that armed German Jews would have had more power than France seems to me a little odd. <laughs> and after all, France could not stop Germany, so I don't know how Jews with pistols would have, but, <laughs> but that's the problem. Um, that you have a significant number, and it, but it's, it's, not the, it's not the vote, it's the voters. It's the Republican voters, this is the percentages. Similarly, in the House, and this is again very significant, there are Republican members of the House who are intimidated by the anti-government people. Two of the most significant things that were said recently didn't get enough attention. Both Speaker Boehner and Kevin McCarthy said that among the reasons for their reluctance to run for speaker was they did not want to force their friends to take a tough vote. The tough vote was to vote for either one of them as speaker because there would be people in the districts of those members who would be angry at them for voting for people who had this commitment uh, to, to keep things going. I, I wrote in one article that, uh, to summarize, John Boehner was convicted by the Tea Party of a new crime, conspiracy to commit government. And that's the problem. We have, and by the way, on the Democratic side, and I don't equate Bernie Sanders remotely with either Trump or Carson, but there is clearly more anger, more dissatisfaction on the Democratic side, and it has at points threatened uh, our ability to function. During the financial crisis, Bob alludes to it. We, we came dangerously close to a kind of a left-right coalition of the angry to forbidding the International Monetary Fund from intervening in the financial crisis and from forbidding the Federal Reserve to engage in currency swaps with, uh, with members uh, of the European Union. I mean, we had to work very hard to try and stop that. It was first the Bush administration and then uh, some holdovers like Ben Bernanke. And so here's where we are. I believe we are in danger. Well, give me one other thing. Bob and I were talking. I know there are people who have been critical of the financial reform bill on the grounds that we have not ended the possibility of bailouts of major institutions. In fact, we have. And there is a sensible question that is raised, namely that we might have gone too far and that while we have put into that legislation things that we think will keep these institutions from becoming overly indebted, it may still happen. And it is conceivable that you would reach a crisis where it would be in the national interest to extend some money to keep a very large institution alive, even though you wish you could kick them in the ass, but you need them. And it is true, you do not have the power to do this under the bill. My answer to people is that the anger in America was, such, was at such a white-hot pitch that it would not have been possible to have provided a standby authority to do that that if people want to deal with that, they're going to have to 
make that, prove that at the time. But it's not just there. I think we are at a point where the degree of respect for, confidence in, acceptance of the need for government is diminishing to a dangerous point that it will interfere with our ability to govern ourselves well. We're not going to become chaotic, but, it, but, but there were real losses. And that's where foreign policy comes in. I think what we have is a degree of anger on both sides, conservative and liberal. Interesting, there's a kind of a genuine anger. Some people think the answer is to have much less government. Others think the answer is to have more government. I'm more on that side. But both of them, the problem is that in both cases, you have not simply a disagreement with specific policies, but a belief that the government isn't even trying, that the government's out to screw them, that the government is, is run by bad and mean people. And that I believe we should try to turn around. But it can't be turned around by the most clever manipulation in Washington or being nice to each other. Um, I, I understand you know, Joe Biden is a tough moment for him because of one of the great careers in American history, public careers is coming to an end. But his, uh, his, his criticism of Hillary Clinton for saying the Republicans are the enemy is simply wrong. Enemy doesn't mean that, they, that, that you go shoot them. But, but the fact is that the gulf has grown to the point where, and, and the notion that I want to go out and I'll be nice to people. Um, I've seen this one coming. When President Obama said in 2008 that he was going to govern in a post-partisan manner, I knew from my own experiences with where the Republican Party was going that that was going to be very difficult. I told one of his people that when he said that, he gave me post-partisan depression because I didn't <laughs> think it was going to work very well. But I believe the fundamental problem is it's the economic facts being reflected. A very large number of, of, of Republicans and Democrats, of citizens, of non-party people, are angry because their relative economic position has deteriorated substantially, and, and it has, in fact, in some cases, deteriorated absolutely when the rest of the country is doing better. There is an anger that says, this government doesn't like me. It's, it's, and, and, and it's interesting. On the right, philosophically, there's a view that the government's inherently bad. On the left, this is why we have people who, of the demographic who would have voted for Democrats before. Many of them believe that the government can, in fact, help and are particularly angry because it is not helping. And that's the fundamental situation. It is the increase in inequality that has led people across the spectrum to believe that the government doesn't like them and they, then we have a vicious cycle. People believe that the government is ill-intentioned. So they vote for people who dislike government. The more people are in power who dislike government, the less the government can do to alleviate the anger. And the more the anger, the less government can do. That's where foreign policy comes in. I believe that we have to break that vicious cycle and it's not gonna be done by people talking to each other, being nice to each other, by, it's not an internal Washington thing. It is, there is a need for us, if you believe as I do, that it is damaging to our quality of life to have this lack of support for government. We have to find ways to reinstill a view in large parts of the American public that the government can act in their interest, but it cannot be done verbally.
It can only be done by doing it. It can only be done if we begin to do things programmatically that make people's lives easier, that improve the quality of their lives, and that begin to diminish inequality and give them a sense that the government is trying to help them. As they said, I, I, that, that's how you do it. Now, I believe there are programs that could do that. Personally, I think if we were to drop the age of Medicare to 55, we would make a lot of people very happy and make people better off. A massive infrastructure construction program, not just highways, but public transportation. And unlike the way it was when we first did this, there have been enough social gains so women and minorities would be a part of this. That's putting people to work, you know, building highways and fixing bridges and building transit. It is good work at good jobs, and it is very hard to build a road from Mumbai. So without being protectionist, you provide good jobs here. I think it is very important, given the importance of education, to find some way that you significantly increase the ability of people from lower income places to get a good higher education and not be indebted. And I think all those things, from my standpoint, they, they are twofers. They have substantive good results, and they make people think better of government. The problem is, in the current situation, we can't afford them. Now, that to me is more political than economic. I do not think the American debt is at a level where it is, where it is threatening us. Uh, most of the, I think Paul Krugman has been very good uh, in, in all of that. But the concern about an increased deficit and debt is a very real political constraint, even if it isn't that much of an economic one. And so what I want to do both for the merits of the programs and because I want to break out of the cycle, this is a very serious thing. You have one of the two major parties, the Republican Party, in the grips of a terrible fever. Uh, the speakership and the presidency, two of the great offices in America, are, are now in jeopardy uh, uh, in terms of being able to assemble people. And by the way, please do not believe Paul Ryan, who's a wonderful guy, when he said that he didn't want to be speaker because he didn't want to give up the power he had as chairman of Ways and Means. The next time you hear a guy say, I am not leaving AAA baseball because I don't want to play in the majors, uh, the travel schedule is too tough, then you'll have had the equivalent of Paul Ryan. I, I've been doing this for 32 years. I did it. In no case has any speaker been less powerful than the committee chairman. It, it just doesn't make sense. He is reflecting the problem that you become speaker and you do not have a governing majority behind you. And that people who want to join you, as Boehner and McCarthy said, are afraid to vote for you because they're going to have problems with their own primary electorate. So I believe that the, the only way out of this is, in fact, to do things that make people understand, once again, see that they have a stake, and they, in particular, are ways of diminishing inequality. The problem, as I said, is that uh, we don't have the money to do it because of this political constraint of the debt. And so what I would like to do is to find about $150 billion a year out of current expenditures and put that to some of the programs that I believe would break us out of this vicious cycle. And uh, I think I found them. Uh, the lesser one is the war on drugs. That one is moving. Um, locking people up because we don't like what they inject or swallow really doesn't work very well and it is very expensive. 
and you see a kind of a conservative liberal thing there. And, and please reject the notion from some that, oh, well, if we just did this more efficiently, we could save the money. First of all, inefficiency in government is really a deliberate policy. Um, I never like metaphors, and there's a terribly damaging metaphor. We're going to cut the fat off the government. Well, if you have to have that metaphor, yeah, there's fat in government, but it is not thickly settled at the edges. It is marbled, and cutting out marbled fat is a very difficult thing to do. Um, there is no way you're going to administer a massive program of locking these people up more cheaply. And I, people have said to me, how come it costs more to send someone to our maximum security prison than to send them to the state university? And there's a very simple answer. People do not try to escape from the state university. Um, when you lock up people, many of whom are unpleasant, against their will all the time, you got to spend some money. But I'll leave aside the, uh, the, the, the drug, I think that was coming, by the way. But it is the military question. Uh, I, I admire Madeleine albright Greggy, but she's the one who said, America is the indispensable nation. If there is trouble anywhere, any time, any place, we must get involved. I think the time has come. That, that was an appropriate role for America after World War II when the rest of the world was hurt. We are greatly overextended uh, on a number of grounds. And I, I look at it, the justification for being everywhere. It clearly goes beyond, not, there's obviously self-defense, and you go beyond that to some ability to intervene on behalf of, of, of those who are with you. But clearly what's at stake now, is to, it's in the Cheney's book, it's in Henry Kissinger's new book, but it's in Madeleine Albright's, that it is somehow America's mission to preserve order in the world. And let's be clear, it is order, it is not human rights. No alliance, which is dedicated in part to preserving the Saudi Arabian regime, can really very plausibly talk about human rights as part of its uh, model. We're there to preserve order. I think that's why Cheney and Wolfowitz and the others wanted to go into Iraq. There was a demonstration of order. Let me say this. First of all, I do not think it is in America's, there was no demonstrated self-interest for America to maintain order in the world. I regret disorder in various places. I regret chaos. But it does not make our lives worse off. That may be somewhat callous uh, in any one case. But the fact is that if we continue to undertake to be the maintainer of order everywhere in the world, we will be spending money in our federal budget that precludes any of the things I talked about. Forget about doing anything more in the United States to improve the access to education or relieve the healthcare burden or even clean up the environment or improve the infrastructure. There's just no room for it. Secondly, even if you think that is in our interest, in many cases it is beyond our capacity. I, I, I don't mean to, I, you know, back in the academy, I know this is not the political science department, but uh, there were two political philosophers that I remember reading when I was undergraduate from the 17th century uh, who really began to talk about the role of the state, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. John Locke was the uh, advocate for democracy. We, we wrote our constitution in part because of him. Thomas Hobbes also was for a state. That wasn't just what God told you to do. But he had a much more limited view. He just wanted to keep things from flying out of control. He was the one who said that, uh, you know, without government, life would be nasty, brutish, and short. 
I think that I look now at the Middle East, and we have made this fundamental mistake. We have thought that Locke was the applicable political philosopher when it really ought to be Hobbes. I wish we could do things to bring some order there. But even if we thought it was important, and again, I, let me start with self-interest. I, I, everything I know tells me that Hafez Assad was a bad guy and Bashir was a bad guy and Syrians would be better off without them. But I, they have never been a problem for us. And again, I am not saying that we have no interest anywhere, but let's start with that. They didn't cause us problems. Saddam Hussein never caused us problems. He caused problems to the people of Iraq. So you get beyond self-defense, and then the question is, okay, how about the moral impulse to intervene? Uh, the first thing to say is that it's enormously expensive. So if you want to do it, please, anybody, you want to go have a no-fly zone in Syria or put more troops in Iraq or Afghanistan, please tell me how much you're going to pay for it because it's going to be enormous. Make it even worse than we are now. But the other point is that it, it's not doable. And I think we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what a military can do. Our military is a great group of people, very well armed. They can stop bad things from happening. They cannot make good things happen. And you see this, I believe, with both Iraq and Afghanistan, where the argument on the president is, you shouldn't have pulled out, you gotta stay in. And they understand his pressure. There was an op-ed headline in the New York Times the other day, we are losing Afghanistan. I didn't know we had it. <laughs> I didn't know it was ours to lose. I am sorry that it is not better governed. I do not think it is within our capacity to fix that, and certainly not without an occupation of the place. When you intervene in a civil war to help one side, I at one point was saying, if you want to help the good guys, but essentially in many of these places, we are helping the less bad guys against the worst guys. So we intervene to keep the, 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 the less bad guys from losing, but it's a civil war. We can never get out. What reason is there to think that an intervention in the Civil War will change things? And I, I have questions to ask. Um, I mean, a part of, I wish the side that we preferred was doing better. I don't know how we do this. Uh, air power. There is a complaint that we have not given enough air power to the Afghan army. You know how much air power the Taliban has? Nothing. And then we got to train. Oh, we haven't trained them well. Well, who the hell trained the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda? Unfortunately, it appears that they are better motivated, and again, I wish I could, we could change that. But it's a, it's a multi-level analysis. I do not think it is in our self-defense to stop it. I would like to if we could. It would be enormously expensive, and I, I don't think it is doable. And then there is this notion that we gotta protect the whole world. I read now, we're gearing up in Western Europe, our army, we've pulled it down some, because the Europeans are worried about Putin. I share their worry. One more reason for me to be happy with the way Russia is now being governed, that my grandparents got the hell out of there. But if Putin is a threat, why don't Italy and France and Germany and Denmark and Luxembourg and the Netherlands and Belgium and Spain and Portugal and Poland and the Czech Republic and Slovakia do something about it? They are collectively larger than Russia, richer than Russia, and uh, we're in charge of defending them. I really, and, and, and by the way, when we do step in and defend people who should be defending themselves, we are told that this is an exercise of our, this is great for us, it's, it's more soft power. I believe this notion 
that we are uh, benefited when other people let us take over their defense is a tribute to the fact that the most popular book in the world today is Tom Sawyer. Because everybody else has figured out how to get America to paint the fence and be grateful. And by the way, this is the opposite of isolationism. Our excessive military intervention diminishes our ability to do things, to fight hunger, to fight disease, to help with sensible economic development. Isolation, I'm very proud of the role America plays, and President Obama deserves a lot of credit instead of the criticism he got for the way we dealt with Ebola, where only one person died in America and, 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 and he brought it with him. All these fears about what was gonna happen without massive quarantine, without cutting off immigration. And the one nation in Africa where Ebola was most successfully combated was Liberia, where we took the lead. So that's the point. Uh, oh, and by the way, other factors I talk about, the wars. One of the ones that get, we have to keep the shipping lanes open. Some of they try to make an economic uh, argument. America has to keep the shipping lanes open uh, because uh, that's so important for our economy. Well, it does seem to me as I look at the map and the choke points, the major threat to shipping that's relevant to us appears to be the Straits of Malacca near the Philippines. And you know what happens through the Straits of Malacca? The Chinese send us an enormous amount of goods and make hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Now, if you look who has the military power to challenge us, it's basically only China. So apparently, we have to build up more Navy ships to keep China from shutting off the route over which China makes a lot of money. I'm skeptical. I want to keep some ships in the, in, in the Persian Gulf. We don't need them there. Last point, let me talk about the Air Force. And again, we are overprepared. Here's the Air Force. Article in the Wall Street Journal the day after the 2012 election. I will confess, um, I love to read the Wall Street Journal when things are going bad for the Republicans. I've been reading the Wall Street Journal recently in the last couple of weeks. I, I, I love it. I was, I was doing MSNBC and uh, waiting on it. I heard Brian Williams complain that Nancy Pelosi hadn't called him to comment when they tried to get her to comment when, when Kevin McCarthy dropped out. And I volunteered uh, the explanation. I said, you know, Nancy is a very well brought up young woman and she's very tough and very determined but she didn't call you to comment on Kevin McCarthy, and I am sure this is the answer, because the nuns taught her it was not nice to gloat. Young ladies didn't do that, but I do, I gloat. And um, the, the Wall Street Journal, day after the 2012 election, two guys with high Air Force connections from the Bush administration, I'm gonna close with this, we are worried, because with Obama winning, he will not give the Air Force the additional strength it needs, and they conceded no American military personnel has been killed by hostile air power since 1953, 59 years before. And they acknowledge America has dominated the airspace over every battlefield since then. And they lament because of this, some people don't realize that we have to expand the Air Force. And the reason why do we have to expand the Air Force? because America has to be able to respond to trouble anywhere, anytime, anyplace. I am sorry to read about what's going on in Somalia. I, I was happy when we got independence for South Sudan from Sudan, and now the South Sudanese are killing each other. I don't think the American Marines can stop it. And, and the, here's the problem, the notion is that it's, 
we blame ourselves if we are not able to prevent civil strife in other parts of the world where it has no impact on us from the humanitarian standpoint, I'd like to change it. If I go back to the Air Force, you know, of course, that the Air Force is the largest Air Force in the world. I think it is still the case, the Chinese may be moving up, but I'm pretty sure it is still the case that the second largest Air Force in the world is the U.S. Navy. Now, on the assumption that the Navy and the Air Force will not soon go to war with each other, <laughs> I do not understand why we could not reduce one or the other. And the last thing I'll throw in, I don't like Putin and I think they're dangerous and they're a threat to the people right on their border. They are not a threat to us of thermonuclear destruction than they were before. You know, they've lost Kazakhstan and Ukraine and they have a much smaller nuclear capacity. We are still fully equipped to drop thermonuclear weapons on the Soviet Union in an all-out war in three ways. Intercontinental ballistic missiles, airplanes, and uh, nuclear submarines with multiply independently targeted reentry vehicles. I have a serious proposal. People think I'm kidding. I want to say to the Pentagon, all right, you have three ways to defeat the Soviet Union, which is today much less of a threat to success the nation than it was before. Pick two. Give up one of your three ways of destroying the Soviet Union in the thermonuclear war, and we'll save about $10 billion. So that is the interconnection. If we do not change, and certainly if we were to increase and go into Syria and further in Iraq and Afghanistan, and increase uh, what we're doing because of what's happening in the South China Sea, and increase the reassurance we give to the Europeans so they don't have to spend any money, and we do. By the way, I have a article coming out in political. I am now prepared, 70 years after World War II, to stop punishing Japan and Germany because the punishment we impose on them is not to let them defend themselves. And we punish them by picking up what they should have to spend on the military and I'm willing to let them out of that doghouse and let them spend on their own. But if we do continue this, then um, I, I, what we're now seeing is gonna get worse. This is gonna be a more really permanent condition. That is, if we are not able to do real programmatic things that reverse, I should, should have said this before, last point, I keep saying that, but this is the one. What's going on in America economically is not the fault of the government. It's the effect of world trends. The, the, the more money for people at the high end, less for the low end. That reflects fundamental economic trends. But the government can ameliorate those. The government can, can diminish those. If we do not, if we continue to let those trends take place and inequality continues and the anger continues, uh, I believe our capacity for self-government, which will include things like regulation, will get worse and worse and the quality of life in this country will deteriorate as a result. Thank you, Barney, and on that happy note, let me open the floor uh, to questions. Questions are questions, uh, not statements. So if you'll restrict yourself that way, let me open the floor. But, yeah. Yeah, hi, uh, Stephen Max Patterson. I, uh, uh, I'm a journalist, but I write about technology. Uh, my readership uh, has more devices and friends, so I don't think that qualifies me as, uh, as being excluded here, but if it does, just say so. Um, the, the big question I have is, uh, Judge Rakoff said that uh, Wall Street could have been prosecuted 
and they weren't. And uh, I asked um, I asked my representatives, uh, both senators here in Massachusetts and uh, Stephen Lynch, uh, as the statute of limitations expired, uh, by mail, by email, and by phone, to tell me what their thoughts were and what what their position was. And none of them responded. And I think it's a crime uh, equivalent to the privatization uh, of uh, the public assets in Russia that took place that no one wa wa was tri tried for. Of the things that undermine the government, uh, there really is this sore that hasn't been settled. So my question is, is what should be done at this point well, now, I, I now that they're, they're gone to clear, clear yeah, this up? I, um, I shared your puzzlement. The committee I chaired did not have any jurisdiction, let me just be, so we can't give the full explanation of, so there was no decision we made. Jurisdiction over criminal prosecution belongs to the Judiciary Committees. We did not have that. I did call for that, and I am still puzzled about it. There is a good argument not to prosecute the institution, first because you're punishing shareholders and others and people who work there, and because that may be destabilizing. I do not know why there were not more prosecutions of individuals. There were some, some partial explanations. One is that some of the things that were wrong were not illegal, and there, will be, I, there could be more prosecution going forward. But there were some outright frauds and lies. And um, here is the problem, and it's a kind of a problem for liberals. We have always believed in due process, which means that you do not get criminally prosecuted unless you had good grounds to know that the behavior you were engaging in was illegal, not just immoral. And that, in many of these cases where you would have liked to see a prosecution, probably wasn't clear. Um, having said all that, I don't know why there were not more prosecutions. The administration has sort of admitted that they should have been, and the new attorney general says there were going to be, and uh, I, I, that's all I can tell you. I, I, I guess part of it may have been a cultural thing, that, well, these are not, it's not the same as shooting someone. Um, and it was an answer that I was never quite able to get uh, myself. I don't know, Elizabeth Warren has talked about that. Hillary Clinton's uh, new financial plan talks more about prosecuting individuals. Uh, and I guess there was one last thing. To prosecute the, and, and there was this complaint, well, you're prosecuting, some people have been prosecuted, they're the mid-level people. It is not hard with good lawyers and laws that aren't clear cut to insulate yourself from the criminal responsibility so that it, proving that the top people knowingly violated the law, which is what you need for criminal conviction, is hard in some cases because they had good lawyers making it hard. Hi, my name is Peter. I'm in the physics department. Thanks uh, for your time and sharing your thoughts. Uh, two very brief questions. One is, do you feel that uh, the change or the, de the decrease in earmarks has changed the governability <coughs> of the House of Representatives? And secondarily, sort of the flip side of what you're saying, do you feel that Russia's sort of recent expansionism, where they're kind of doing the opposite of everything you're suggesting the United States is, to, is doing, is weakening them? Thank you. I think, well, two things. First of all, is it, it may be weakened, and let me take the second one first. Remember, my argument is that what is weakened here is the support for the public, for government. Uh, in Russia, uh, they are increasingly a non-democratic state, and this may be a temporary advantage a non-democratic state has. I guess I would say this. I cannot believe if Russia had any degree of democracy 
that uh, Putin wouldn't have been suffering for the, they've, they've suffered real economic harm as a result of Ukraine. Um, I'm not worried about it, by the way. I mean, this notion, oh, well, you know, some people, they're going to be more powerful than us. By the way, and this is clearly true of the Middle East, it does appear to me to be impossible to do anything for anybody in the Middle East without somebody else hating you for what you did. I mean, I know they had this, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I was going to write the variation, yes, but the friend of my enemy is my enemy's friend. I mean, the, the, you know, we're with Iran in, 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 uh, in, in uh, Iraq, and we're against Iran in, in Yemen. And the, so I do think Russia, let's put it this way, Russia is suffering. But Putin appears to be insulated from the harm that would bring elsewhere by the lack of democracy. And because, and I know I'm not an expert in the Russian psyche, there does appear to be at least a short term, oh, we're standing up for, for the Russians. But in the end, I think it, it, if it were more democratic, it would be, uh, it would be a, uh, a problem. And the first question again? E earmarks, or they're, yeah. they're decreasing. No, let me say they're... this. Earmarks were helpful, but they are, uh, and I was for them, and they were a way to alleviate bureaucratic, uh, I use earmarks, by the way, there's no notion of secret earmarks. I ever got an earmark, I, I, made, I bored people telling them about it. Um, they are a way to introduce what your particular voters want in a, in a geographic situation, different than what the, the central government wants. But it goes beyond that, and I, that's why I said there are, people need to understand in my judgment, there are no technical fixes, there are no procedural fixes for this. You have a significant percentage of the Republican Party that has been convinced that governance is a bad thing, and while you don't deliberately set out to shut it down, you make no compromises to, 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 to make it work. And since we have this anti-majoritarian government built by the founding fathers that gives them the, uh, the veto power, and then you have on the Democratic side people who don't want to shut the government down but are also angry, so earmarks would help some, but, but earmarks wouldn't have saved John Boehner. As a matter of fact, if you go and study Somebody wants to do an academic paper on this. You go study the uh, the Freedom Caucus. I I am certain that a majority of them made as part of their electrical electoral platforms that they hated earmarks and wouldn't take them. This is beyond. I mean, earmarks are part of the normal bargaining. These are people who reject the normal bargaining because the normal bargaining has as its justification the importance of the government functioning, and they don't believe in that. Hello, Barney. I'm the dining room table. Right, the Lyndon LaRouche uh, person. That's right. Um, 95 million Americans are unemployed right now who are eligible for work. Uh, the Dodd-Frank bill was written by Bank of America and Credit Suisse. Uh, the Wall Street financial system is bankrupt. Uh, we can look across the world and look at the BRICS countries they are developing while Europe and the United States are sinking, and our population is being destroyed by the collapse of this system. Unless we put through Glass-Steagall and shut down Wall Street, more lives are gonna be lost, which already have been. I don't think legalizing drugs is gonna make it less painful. But my question to you is, why are you lying about Glass-Steagall? Because the principle is, if we shut down the Wall Street side of the financial system, we will save the rest right, of first, the system. Let me take a couple of the mistakes you make. One, uh, this is the representative of Lyndon LaRouche, who some of you will have seen our previous interaction in 2009, when holding a poster of President Obama 
altered to look like Adolf Hitler. Who just bombed I'm a sorry, hospital. You had your chance. You had your chance. You, uh, she showed the picture of, Adolf, of, of Obama as Adolf Hitler and asked me why I was supporting a, uh, a health care that embodied the principles of Nazidom. And uh, I, I, yes, uh, I, I clearly have very little respect for what she's saying. Uh, all right, I'm sorry, but you, uh, you, we do have rules here. I know you people don't like them. Secondly, secondly uh, you talk about the BRICS. BRICS, as many of you know, is Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Your argument that Brazil, for example, is flourishing economically is an even greater separation from reality than you people usually indulge in. Uh, having, I'm, I'm sorry, no, I'm not gonna be interrupted. I listen to you at great length. I asked the moderator not to stop you. I will not be interrupted, that's your tactic. The fact is that neither, by the way, is Russia flourishing. I think they are hurting. As to Glass-Steagall, I think there are better ways to do this. Here's my problem with Glass-Steagall. It does not impose restrictions on these activities. What it says is, Glass-Steagall passed in 1933, that certain financial activities will be done separately in the banks and other institutions. It doesn't shut down Wall Street. Under Glass-Steagall, all of the derivative activity, all of those things would be perfectly legal. In fact, I'm sorry, you, can you not control yourself? Are you not able to listen, having talked? The fact is that Glass-Steagall does nothing in itself to regulate these activities. It says they are done in two separate entities, and it wouldn't shut down Wall Street. There would be maybe two entities where there was one before, but they would be unregulated in what they do. Yeah. Hi. Uh, first, I wondered if you could just clarify uh, one of your statements. Um, you said something to the effect of you thought uh, the philosophy of Hobbes was more applicable to the current situation in the Middle East than, than Locke. And yeah. my second question is, I think you said your, um, your proposal to regain, what was it, 150 billion federal dollars would be um, ending the war on drugs, cutting one portion of the nuclear triad, and was there a third part? I, oh, I sure, I talked about not expanding the Air Force, not going back in militarily. Yeah. Okay. A substantial, uh, pulling the troops out of Western Europe, about $100 billion a year phased in from the military budget. Okay, well, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on going even further and taking the initiative to cut the military budget you know, in half from where it is now, which is 600 billion annually, to where it was, I, I think, in 2000. Things. Two things, first, on that last one, it may well be that we could get there. I do want to do things that are politically feasible. It is also the case that there are interests that have grown up around that spending, and too rapid a reduction, even spending that I do not think is wise spending, if you get rid of it too quickly, you can have destabilizing effects. Uh, so I, it may be we can get down that far. By the way, that's the path we had been on. In 1990, when the Soviet Union collapsed, George H.W. Bush began a downward path on military spending, continued by Bill Clinton, and it went down very significantly. That, by the way, is why John Kasich is now able to boast about having balanced the budget, which he forgot to mention he did with Bill Clinton. And it was because, in part, we had cut military spending and we had raise taxes on the rich. There were also some unfortunate domestic cuts. Um, but um, <coughs> in 
if you were to continue that kind of path, I think you could, you could get there. As to Hobbes and Locke, it's this. John Locke's view is that you institute government of the people themselves. You know, 1,700 white guys, but, but still that's, that was what Pastor DeMock said. Hobbes had a much narrower view of what was possible. And I have to say, and I, look, I will, I'll admit some mistakes. I was wrong. I made two mistakes about foreign policy. I voted against George H.W. Bush's expelling Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. I was wrong and he was right, because here's the deal. Kuwait, there was not a civil war there. There was a stable society. Not a great liberal one, but it was a stable society. They were invaded by a hostile negative party. And what we did was to go in there, throw out the invader, and then we were able to withdraw. Uh, I'm still, I, I was afraid that they wouldn't do that, that they would keep going. I still don't know what benign spirit seized Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney at that point and had him behave so rationally. But I acknowledge that he, that he did. Uh, what? Yeah, that's right. A President Bush who controlled him rather than was controlled by him. Absolutely right. Meanwhile, on the, uh, I was wrong to support, I believe, the uh, active overthrow of Gaddafi. As bad as he was, I think the Libyan people have been much worse off. That was a Hobbesian situation. You did not have in Libya the degree of social coherence for John Locke to work. And I think that what's happened in Libya since Gaddafi was killed, is that, that life has become nasty and brutish and for some people short. And I think there's a, we, we, not every country can go right to the Lockean stage. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jeremy Avins. I'm a student here at Kennedy. Um, in places where you think that uh, the United States should pull out uh, interventions, say Syria, Afghanistan, or what have you, what are your thoughts on either spending on you know, non-military humanitarian aid where it would be, or also on the idea of more targeted interventions to prevent violent groups, terrorists, from having a safe haven. Good point, yeah, I do think, I would, you know, look, these are all more or less, not either or. Um, I supported bombing the Islamic State, unusually vicious, and air power can help to retard them, um, and, and it can be in and out again, so that one I agree with. As to humanitarian aid, Yes, if they can take it. It's part of the problem is when you get a Libya, you can't deliver humanitarian aid. On the other hand, there is an example where I think we should be doing much more, not militarily, and that's Ukraine. Uh, I think we should be doing more. The Ukrainian people are hurting because they have had an economic destabilization by, by Putin's brutality, and it's costing them money. I would be in favor of a significant increase in funds, not just from us, but from the Europeans uh, to Ukraine. So where there is a capacity to use it well, yes. Hi, um, I'm really terrified of public speaking, so excuse me. Um, I've written down what I wanted to ask you, but first I wanted to say um, I listened to most of your biography on tape and I really enjoyed it and thank you. And for much of my life, I felt like you were representing me even though you weren't my representative. Um, and there's a few people in Congress that, you know, one feels that way about. But, um, so I have a kind of a two-part question. I, I read uh, an interview with you in Politico uh, recently, today or yesterday, um, that said that liberals should not support, or if I read it correctly, that liberals 
uh, it would be counterproductive for liberals to support Bernie Sanders. Um, but you've mentioned several things. I mean, and much of your life has been, I think, supporting many of the things that yes. he talks about. So, but By the way, you're doing fine. You've no reason to be nervous. Oh, well, well, I just, just No, you're doing out. fine. I okay. shouldn't have brought it up. Okay. Keep going. Um, um, and and in, you know, in your, your book, you talk a lot about politics and compromise and, and mm -hmm. how that works. And um, so the question is, as a legislator, to what extent are your actions based on your principles and beliefs, and to what extent on the desires or um, principles of your constituents? Very good. You have a couple of questions. Let me ask first. Um, and I appreciate the plug. I, I wrote a memoir, and I read it. That is, that's me on the tape. I know, probably you know that. I, I learned early on that I would never be able to make anonymous phone calls. So, um, <laughs> but I, I read it. I read it for, for it takes 13 hours, I'm told. Um, and, um, but there was a theme in that film. As to Bernie Sanders, um, I have some difference with Bernie Sanders. I, I agree with many of his specifics. I do think that, for instance, during the period of 2008 and 9, that he was a little too often aligned with those who, uh, I mean, the Federal Reserve is nobody's, people don't like the Federal Reserve, but they played a very constructive role. And I think he was sometimes not fully uh, uh, supportive of that, never quite where, uh, where, where Ron Paul was. Uh, but my major difference with Bernie Sanders is that there, uh, there was no remote chance of his winning the final election. Look, American liberals have for years been defending the programs we support and our presidents against the accusation that they were socialist, that healthcare is socialist, that Medicare is socialist. The only program that is truly socialist that the right doesn't attack, by the way, is the hospital care provided by the uh, Veterans Administration, which is genuinely socialized medicine, but they like that, so it's okay. Um, but um, I, I do not see any chance that Bernie Sanders could win. And one of the things I say in the book is I decided early on after making a few mistakes, that I would be for the most liberal, electable person. And uh, I'll be honest with you, you know, I do agree with, you know, although I'm, I, I, I don't agree with everything, I do agree with him more than with Hillary Clinton on this intervention, but I guess to be honest, if I believe that you could believe everything Bernie Sanders believes and get elected President of the United States, that would still not lead me to support him. I would run um, myself. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I just think that's, it's like cutting from 600 to 300. It goes beyond. I will say this, if we get someone elected, I, for Hillary Clinton, and we can implement a lot of these programs, and by the way, the substantive differences between Bernie Sanders are not, are not great now, um, but that's my reason for, uh, for thinking that. And I should add, just a little ego, that, that was not an interview in political, I wrote, that was an article I wrote. I write for political twice a, twice a month. Oh, I'm sorry, then they get to question. Uh, do, whose views do I take into account? I think the way democracy should work is this. I think when you run, you should be as open as you can be about what you believe in and what you will do. You can't anticipate every issue. But the voters ought to know what you think. Once you get there, you should do what you think is right. Understanding, particularly if you've got a two-year term, that they can kick you out if they don't like it. Now, I make one exception. Some issues, those are on public policy, broad public policy issues, moral values. There are some issues which will affect the district you represent that really affect only them. For example, 
uh, some highway issues. You know, I, should the highway there be one lane or two lane? We're not talking about the interstate highway. There are some, you know, some physical things. There I would, I would defer, I would, I would tend to defer to them. But in general, my view is you're a legislator, you do what you think is right, uh, and you hope that they agree with you. You, you. you have told them what you think, and then you try and persuade them. Guy Albergini, citizen. Um, was the American taxpayer on the hook of an estimated almost two quadrillion dollars derivatives uh, why should we stay with that route as opposed to going with HR 3054 and S1709, which are companion bills, bipartisan? What do called, they do? Called, what's that? I, I don't, I, I apologize, I don't remember the, the bills by number. What do they well, do? Well, the name is, the companion bill is called the 21st Century Banking Act. Is that the Glass-Steagall revision? Here's the problem yeah. I have with that. Neither one of those bills... I agree that we should not be having this problem with derivatives. And much of what we did in the bill was to regulate them. AIG showed up and said that they were $185 billion in debt for a form of derivative known as credit default swaps. And by the way, not only couldn't pay, didn't know how much they owed. We now require you, if you're engaged in derivatives, to have enough capital and to post margins on the trades. So we've made it much less likely that they will fail. What you are talking about is saying, okay, but if they are in a bank, uh, will that injure the bank deposits? And I do not think that that happens. I think, and the other problem is this, if all you do is separate them out, well, let's put it this way, a massive failure, probably even better, AIG was $185 billion in the hole on derivatives. And the Bush administration felt that it had to intervene to pay those debts because there would have been a crash and they were probably right at the time. None of that had to do with Glass-Steagall. Under the Glass-Steagall Act, all the subprime loans would have been legal. Nothing in Glass-Steagall would have prevented them from happening. All the derivatives would have been legal. AIG would not have been any way retarded. And Lehman Brothers would have failed with or without it. So I believe that... Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I, uh, you're dis... I hope that I, I appreciate your outburst because it makes it clear what little regard you have for democracy. You are, you, I hope you understand what a disruptor we have here and her manners are no better than her intellect. But that's the answer. The, the answer is that separating out activities that are damaging in no way improve, it diminishes their capacity to damage the economy. Well, the point is, that well, you made your point, sir. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to change the tone for just a second and say, and just say that um, it is wonderful to have a lion of Washington honor a lion of Harvard, and we really appreciate the uh, the dialogue. Uh, I have a very some well, a complex question, but it deals with financial regulation. Your your comment at the beginning where you mentioned $250 million by the CFTC to regulate uh, derivatives. Um, I guess I should have thought of it before, but it, it, it was quite stunning. And, um, you know, I'm doing this in my head, but my guess is that if, you know, you have whatever the budgets are for these agencies, call it a billion, a billion dollars. Like you probably know the number, I don't. 
Um, but then you compare it to uh, what uh, consulting firms are spending to, to um, keep up with this, and that's probably about $5 billion. And then what you, you add what um, these various firms are doing to keep up with it, and it's a few billion dollars each, and then they've all been fined a lot, as they should be. So I, I'm wondering, if, if you look at that, how you, how you feel confident that, you know, given just the outspending that is going on here, you know, is this sustainable? Or yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a very good question. It gets into some technicalities. As an accident, I don't think we ever planned it, the bank regulators do not rely on Congress for an appropriation. The right. CFTC was cut when the Republicans took over the House, and they also cut the Securities and Exchange Commission. They regulate the financial, the non-bank financial activity, right. although there's obviously overlap. And the, uh, the Republicans held them down, and here's the deal. It is easier, and this is where the anti-government thing comes in. We complain you've only given them $250 million, and they say, oh, everybody knows how inefficient government is. That seems like a lot of money. So they are able to achieve part of their goal of, of, of cutting back on the regulation by cutting back on the regulator. In fairness to the regulator, a guy named Gary Gensel and some others, they've done a pretty good job despite that. But here is the, uh, the bank regulators from historical accident are self-funded. They're funded by their own fees. Right. And the real bulwark here, and this is counterintuitive to some people on the left, is the Federal Reserve. And the nice thing about the Federal Reserve is, and Bob knows he was in the Treasury and had to deal with it, they are pretty much exempt from all those constraints. The Federal Reserve can pay people salaries commensurate with what you need. They are outside the scale of payment in the regular federal government, so that in the Treasury you really can't pay people enough. And, uh, and that's why we did put, and in the end, that's one of the reasons why I opted for giving more power to the Federal Reserve. And that does help offset the, uh, the imbalance. The yeah, thank you. In my day, paid the government easier to check it with like 30 billion. Right, and it, 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 the, uh, it makes enough money, and the Federal Reserve, you're not gonna make as much money working for the Fed as for Goldman Sachs or uh, uh, some private entity, but you can, they can pay enough so that people with some public spirit We'll stay there for a while. Okay, thank One you. Last question. Okay, uh, I'm David. I'm from China, and my question is regarding the uh, rebalancing strategy in Asia. Uh, from my understanding, uh, I think that China still have a pretty uh, large gap with, in terms of technology, in terms of education, with the United States. And actually, currently, the real competition is be just between China and Japan. So with the rebalancing strategy, actually Japan's kind of a free rider to, you know, to, to benefit immensely from either diplomatically or, or strategically. Uh, I wonder, you know, how do you comment on the uh, whole strategy? Uh, well, I think the whole thing is somewhat overblown. I gotta tell you, I, I read all about the soft power and I, I don't care whether people, I mean, well, let me put it, I think, I, I thought our opposition to Chinese new infrastructure bank was a mistake. I, we act like, oh, if China lends money to people in Africa instead of us, that's a terrible thing. I think that's a good thing. On the other hand, I am deeply troubled by China's bullying of Vietnam and the Philippines and other smaller nations. I think the, uh, the, the increase in Chinese militarization of the 
islands in the South China Sea is scary. And again, this is in America. This is almost all of China's neighbors being worried by it. And, and that does trouble me. Um, uh, so that's one of the reasons why I, and, and that includes Japan. So I, I'm in favor of Japan doing more for itself. But as far as the rebalancing and pivoting towards China, uh, much of that just doesn't seem to me, I mean, I think sometimes we act like we're in the fourth grade and we're worried about who gets more Valentines. I mean, if China has more influence in Africa because it's lending more money to people in Africa, I, I don't understand why I'm supposed to be opposed to that. So the economic part of that does not, uh, does not trouble me. The South uh, China Sea thing does. And then I think both sides, the whole question of cybersecurity, uh, that's, the, that's the flash point if there is one potentially. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And people follow you around, huh?